welcome to United Health Group's Weekly Dose Podcast, where we'll get you up to speed on the latest trends shaping the future of healthcare. Two years after the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, children and adolescents across the U.S. are experiencing elevated rates of mental health issues. Recent research shows that the first year of the pandemic was particularly impactful on children, leading to higher rates of anxiety, depression, and behavioral concerns. But many of these trends were building well before the pandemic and are now getting renewed attention from federal health officials and others as the nation tries to find new solutions, create broader support, and improve access to care. Joining the podcast to discuss these trends is Dr. Yusra Ben-Halim, Senior Medical Director at Optum Behavioral Health. Dr. Ben-Halim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Evan. Pleasure to be here. Great. Well, great to have you. Um, First, can you just tell me a little bit about your background and your position at Optum? Sure. So I am a board-certified psychiatrist in adult, child and adolescent, and addiction psychiatry. And at Optum, as you said, I serve as a senior national medical director, and I have this incredible opportunity to work with really talented people who are truly trying to live by our mission of making the healthcare system work better for everyone, uh, which really does include how we think about solving problems for children and families, especially nowadays after everything we've been through. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here to talk about this particular topic. Uh, we've seen a lot of data come through recently that really highlights some of the mental health challenges facing children and adolescents. Um, and when you look at that data and, and what you see in your own job, where do you see the biggest area of concern? So I think one thing I try to remind myself and others of, Evan, first of all, is that data and trends and when we talk about shifts and what we're seeing All of those numbers represent people and they represent our communities. And so when we look at what we're seeing change, we are now seeing many more people reaching out their hand for help when it comes to mental health and substance use disorder treatment. So more adults are reaching out and more adults are reaching out on behalf of their children whether they're teenagers or or little children, uh, we're seeing a lot more people saying, I need to get help now. And so one of the biggest concerns is that the demand that we're seeing for solutions and for treatment and for support really outweigh the supply that we have to meet all of these demands. So when we think about how many psychiatrists and therapists we have across the country, we now have more people in need And so we're trying to think critically about how we can meet those needs in real time and all the while start to really think creatively outside of the box to think about when someone knocks on our door, when someone reaches their hand for help, how can we learn more about what they really need help with to help sort of get them connected to the right solution, which may not necessarily always mean treatment, and it may not always mean traditional solutions like we've thought of them before. Can, can you talk about that a little more and what sort of, um, I guess, solutions are coming to life, recognizing that there there is a, a real challenge around the, the number of providers that are available in this space? So the first part that I like to help others pause on is thinking about the on-ramps, thinking about how do we help people know a little bit more about the behavioral health landscape? What does a roadmap even look like? 
before we start to think about solutions and, and options. So one of the key areas of our focus is thinking about ways that we can help people navigate the system, navigate the landscape, and start to learn a little bit more about what is actually on the roadmap. So if we think about the medical side of things, most of us are really lucky because we have kind of a quarterback. We have our primary care doctor or we have our pediatrician. And as a quarterback, they really help us figure out how to get to the right solutions for our health care. In psychiatry and behavioral health, we don't always have that quarterback. So the first step is to think about how do we connect with people so that they can start to reach an on-ramp, start to gain more access to information about, well, what's really out there in behavioral health? What is a therapist? What's the difference between a therapist and a psychiatrist? How do I know if my child needs medications? And then thinking creatively, what are the other support systems out there? So not everyone needs treatment. Not everybody needs therapy. And so how can we start to make things simple, easy to use, easy to access, so that when someone is ready to make the decision for themselves or their family, they have as much information as possible so that they can pick whatever fits them best. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that this is getting much more heightened attention. You know, people are sort of reaching out um, to a greater degree. Um, and, and in part, I assume that attention is, is because of the pandemic um, and, and some of the impacts of that. But can you tell me a little bit more about how this has been building even prior to that and prior to 2020? So as a psychiatrist and especially as a child psychiatrist, I get excited that people are now talking about these things at a national level. But in the back of my mind, I remember that this is something that we faced as a country for decades before the pandemic. So we saw increases in suicide rates at really significant rates sort of increases. So when we think about young people struggling, it's not as easy to grow up nowadays as it was when I was younger, right? Society was different. Technology was totally different. You know, we didn't have social media when I was growing up. And so to grow up in this country has become hard on our young people, and they don't have all the tools and resources they need to navigate this constantly evolving world around them. And there are more risks and different risks now than there were before. So what we saw for people who were only 10 years old all the way to about 26 years old is that for about a decade before 2018, there was an almost 60% increase in suicide rates. And I'd like to just pause on that because that is the rate of people who lost their life to suicide, but it doesn't reflect the number of people who had suicidal thoughts, who had self-harm, who were struggling with depression or anxiety. And so we had so many people in our country who were facing these challenges before the pandemic. And the pandemic sort of just lit a fire on all of those challenges and all of that suffering. And I appreciate that now we have the national attention, but it almost um, happened in a way that is causing a lot of concern about the best way to meet people's needs as soon as possible without breaking the system. How do we build a better system so that a decade from now, we can look back and sort of see that whatever we decide to do as a community is really not only going to solve the problem that we're facing now, but prevents something like another 60% increase in suicide rates in the next 10 years. To build on that a little more, even I'm, 
particularly over the last two years. I'm curious what role uh, trauma or grief have played in sort of the increase of mental uh, health issues, the, the additional attention to that, and how does that manifest into some of the, the trends that we're seeing right now? Yeah, so some people, and myself included, really think about the impact of COVID as one big adverse childhood experience, that it was a very unique and unprecedented form of trauma that we all perhaps went through, through our own experiences. We know adverse childhood experiences impact the risk factors for young people to develop both medical and behavioral health conditions later on. Why is this unique to young people? Well, if we think about it, our lives were turned upside down. But young people in particular were one of the most vulnerable populations. They lost any sort of consistency and routine. There was no such thing as predictability and safety anymore. And all of the grown-ups that they relied on were also going through the pandemic. So when they reached out potentially for help or answers, they had family members who were trying their best and teachers who were doing everything they could, but they were also living in a world of uncertainty. And so imagine being the young person at the center of this tornado that's happening around them. I think young people and families did their best and tried to not just survive, but really do whatever they thought might be most helpful to them as a family unit. The truth is we don't know how everyone is going to process this trauma and how people are going to grieve. So it's really on every individual basis, how do we really process what we've been through and move forward in a healthy way versus are some of us perhaps pushing things down, ignoring things and not finding the support that we need uh, to understand what we've been through and where we wanna go next. And when we think about young people, how old they are and where they are at their stage of development will play a role in how much they really understood about what was going on and what their takeaways might be, and then how they may manifest trauma or any sort of anxiety or depression. So kids are all very different. Some may show nervousness and anxiety and avoidance. Others may have anger outbursts, behavior changes. So there's really no one size fits all, Evan, when we think about how trauma impacts and also how trauma shows up in our, our lives and how we show up around others. And to your earlier point, it sounds like that requires um, many different solutions. Um, what solutions are out there currently? What sort of gaining traction? What do you find promising uh, that's an effective way to address the myriad of, of things that we're seeing now? So what we've seen is a lot of excitement and innovation in the digital space. And we've seen a lot of investment coming from people in places really outside of medicine and outside of behavioral health at rates that we've never seen before, Evan, billions of dollars. And with that comes risk, because now we have families and children who are trying to get the right care and support that they need and typically would have just connected with a doctor, a therapist, someone in the healthcare system. But instead, they're being marketed to now directly from these innovators. So patients have sort of become consumers. And so one of the ways that we're trying to ensure that whatever 
a patient sort of connects with a solution, we make sure that it's sound, that it is going to work for them, and that it might actually be the best fit for them. So how do we do that? We think about the ways in which we can get the right information out. So knowledge is power. So thinking about ways that we can help families know more about the right solutions and be able to make the best informed decision because they really are the experts on their child and their family. They know what might work better uh, than one thing or the other based on how much they know their child. The other thing is that in addition to sort of just giving them the information and helping them not have to go to Google, right, is that we want to connect with them to help them navigate the journey. So in addition to sort of opening the doors and windows to knowing what's out there, ensuring it's evidence-based, we want to also be able to support them in making all of the decisions as they move forward because their needs will change, the needs of their children will change, and it's not just a one-stop shop where it's a one-size-fits-all and it will cure everything indefinitely. We want to be able to make relationships with people so that they can come to us as a trusted source of accurate information and a trusted source of evidence-based solutions. So one way we're doing that is with our family support program. This is where we have a team of experts who really work closely with a family so that they and their child are at the center of all of the decision-making. And we help them navigate, we help them create a roadmap, create their goals, and think about not only helping them in the here and now, but thinking about preventing a crisis and enhancing their resiliency and the well-being of their child. We see so many families bringing their children to emergency rooms and hospitals because they tried a solution and it didn't work, or they just didn't know where to start. So we think about really meeting people where they are, in their homes, in their communities. We think about the advantage of digital solutions and virtual connections and helping support families in taking that first step to improve the here and now, and all the while also thinking about prevention for the future. What are um, some of the things that Optum has, has put in place, either recently uh, or over the last uh, several years that, that have you particularly excited? So I get excited, I get excited about how we are all coming together when we have our clinical team, our product team, our marketing team, we're all coming together to embrace the change within the behavioral health landscape and lead with clinically informed thought leadership. So we are staying creative and open-minded, and we are also thinking critically about all the checks and balances that we want to build as new solutions are being developed. So we have um, a very well-established clinical vetting process where when we learn of a new app, when we have a provider or a vendor who approaches us who wants to be able to pitch a service to one of our members, we all come together and we do our due diligence to have all the checks and balances in place to make sure, number one, is this something that is going to work and why? And do we think this is something that our members would benefit from? And so we are evolving, Evan. I think it's a fascinating time to be in this space because it's no longer just clinicians kind of working in their area and product and innovators and technology and marketing working in their area. The shift from the pandemic has really created an atmosphere where we're getting thought leaders to work synergistically 
in real time. And I think that sets us up to be able to build and deliver solutions that we unlikely would have before pandemic times. Mm -hmm. You know, one other thing that I think we've seen in the research is that kids who need access to mental health services uh, are not necessarily getting them. Um, Why is that historically and, and sort of what's being done to address that issue now? We started off by talking today about the increase in the demand, really outpacing the supply. The question that you ask, I think, is very important because there's no doubt that there is a big group of our population that we don't even know needs us. So we're talking about the demand in the sense of people who are raising their hand and asking for help. What about all the people who are suffering and struggling and don't even know it? or don't know how to raise their hand. There's a lot of reasons for that, Evan. I think we have reduced stigma in the behavioral health space. With more of the national attention to mental health, we see stigma continue to decline. But that doesn't mean that all stigma has gone away. When we think about race and ethnicity and culture, when we think about the social determinants or drivers of health, we think about disparities and inequities, There are still so many factors in place that would stop someone from raising their hand or make it harder for them to get the help they need when they do take that first step. And so we are very well aware of the group of people that we don't even know about yet. And we're thinking critically about ways that we can message to them. We can continue to break the stigma in those spaces and break the barriers to them being able to get the care that they need that's equitable, that's evidence-based. I never take it for granted that we are in this incredible opportunity where we live and breathe behavioral health. We live and breathe this mission of making the healthcare system work better for all, but we hold ourselves accountable that a lot of people still don't have access to equitable evidence-based care. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting point when you describe that. it strikes me the impact um, on for mental health on a child is a little different or substantially different than the impact of mental health on an adult. Um, a child obviously has parents and teachers and uh, sort of a support system around them. Adult, you know, may be uh, more uh, independent. Um, so I, I guess with that said, what would you say to parents, caregivers, who are looking for ways to help their child who who may be in need of, of some type of service? The first thing I would tell them is you're not alone. And whatever your hesitancy might be, your fears, your thoughts about why you shouldn't reach out, to put those to the side and just know that in this moment of courage, I would want you to say, I even if I don't know where to start, I'm going to raise my hand for my child because you are not alone. And a lot of people are in that position. I would also say to trust your gut because you're the expert on your child. So if in any moment you feel like something is different and something is not right, to listen to your gut and to take action, because it's much better if you're able to reach out as early as possible Even if there is no problem and we find out that your child is doing really well and it's nothing to be concerned about, but then we have no regrets that we missed an opportunity. So many times when I work with families, 
a caregiver will tell me, you know, I, I saw something, I felt something a long time ago, and I just thought maybe it would go away on its own, or I, I thought it was no big deal. And then we find ourselves in a crisis. So it comes down to kind of, Evan, once you make the decision that it's better to go ahead and give it a try, who would you connect with? I think one support system is primary care. So when you think about family practice doctors or pediatricians, to be able to kind of start that conversation with your child's provider and let them know what your concerns are. And after the discussion to sort of come up with a game plan. Like, so what is what are the next steps as a caregiver? How are they going to support you and maybe exploring a little bit more? And then what's the game plan as far as when you're going to regroup? So let's say, for example, they are your on-ramp to connect with a therapist. They can help you find the right resources. They may not be. So they may say, well, it might be best to go ahead and call your insurance and see how your benefits would give you coverage for therapy and who is in your network. Even if they refer you to your insurance, I would encourage a caregiver to still come up with a plan with their pediatrician to say, okay, but when can we come back and regroup on what I was able to do and how my child is doing to have that extra layer of support. I think I would also encourage them to call us, to call their insurance plan. And I know it might sound really weird, Evan. Um, you know, why would I call my insurance? <laughs> I think people don't know how much a managed care organization is here to really serve them, especially here where we sit is that I would encourage any caregiver to give us a call and just spend some time talking to us about your concerns and, and be open to collaborating with us on building that roadmap with you and getting you connected to the right supports. We have an incredible team of talented uh, clinicians and experts who know how to connect families with resources and help them and their child get to those on-ramps as soon as possible, especially now when we're building more on-ramps that are easy to use uh, and they connect people with way more solutions that work than, again, we ever had before when we think about traditional and non-traditional support and treatment options. Great. Well, Dr. Ben-Halim, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this important topic. Thank you, Evan. And thank you, everyone who's taking the time to listen. Um, I think if there's one thing I might leave with you is that we can all make a difference. So no matter where you may sit in your day to day life, no matter if you have children or not, um, I would be so grateful for your advocacy. If we all do this together, I think we can really move mountains and, and make the future very different in a much better way, not only for our youth, but also for all of our families. Great. Optimistic way to leave it. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Dr. Ben Halim for joining and thanks to you for listening. Have a great rest of your week.